good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR In this episode, I want to talk about media diversity, or lack thereof. Glenn will speak on that old racist, Prince Philip. The BL from the Bush is going to discuss those dreadful revelations about the rorts and rip-offs from professionals in our Medicare, and the bagman will bring you another glimpse into his memoirs. So stay tuned. So we're having more calls for a parliamentary inquiry into media diversity in Australia, and I suppose looking into the behaviour of the mainstream media. Well, we've been hearing those calls for all oh, more than 20 years, I'm sure. I see that the independent member for Goldstein, that Zoe Daniels, who used to work as a journalist before she entered Parliament, she currently has a motion up in Parliament. She put that in early last month. But when you look at it, we do have one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world, dominated by two companies, News Limited and Nine Media. But there's also problems with the Australian Press Council, which is funded, of course, by the mainstream media. And you can lodge a complaint about the media there if you want to waste your time, because generally the mainstream media is supportive of conservative political interests. So if you're not keen on conservative political interests, well, don't waste your time. But yes, an inquiry into the media is something we would really like to see. And aren't you glad we have 3CR, which is definitely not dominated by conservative politics and is definitely not in the pocket of News Limited or Nine Media, but a truly independent radio. Aren't you glad you're listening? 3CR I hope everyone has finally realised that the Queen is actually dead. We have a king now instead. It's sort of, you know, it's, how can I describe it, listener? It's like some mad game or some science fiction novel. But anyway... Even though she's been dead a while, I'm still hearing and reading many things about her and pictures of her still everywhere. We're going to change names of some streets or something and call them Elizabeth Street. Well, I don't know, but it made me think of what happened when Philip, her consort, died. Do you remember that? That was last year. Was it April? Anyway, whenever it was, he died. And he was 99 years old. He had a history of heart trouble. But what was quite 
remarkable about his death, I found, was the transformation which took place in this saturation media coverage. And he was somehow recast, instead of being the brash, boorish old bugger that he was, he became a model of virtue and tact and unimpeachable rectitude. I remember the Australian, well, a paragon of historical revisionism, saw Prince Philip as a man with the common touch, a royal larrikin. And in the Daily Mirror, he was a sensitive, poetry-loving radical. How absurd! Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marioneth, Baron Greenwich, also called Philip Mountbatten, born Philippos Andrew of schleswig holstein sonderburg Luxburg, Prince of Greece and Denmark, was reduced to a sort of dutiful, stolid figure, far less interesting in death than he had been in life. Well, we have a habit, don't we, listener, of respecting the recently departed. Okay, respect is one thing, rewriting them is quite another. We recall Prince Philip more correctly as a relic of ancient European royalty down to its last sou, a purveyor of horses and hounds, shooting and carriages, with a fine pedigree in offensive racist remarks. In the coded language of his death, these unfortunate characteristics became light-hearted and humorous and always and only termed gaffs. The senior Nazi positions of his sisters and brothers-in-law, who were banned from his wedding to Princess Elizabeth in 1947, given its proximity to the war, they were hidden in the oblique melange of German relatives or family connections. There was even a front page article in the Sunday Times that saying that people secretly rather enjoyed Philip's gaffes about slitty eyes. Of course, following complaints that this trivialised racism, why was he painted as a benign, cuddly uncle of the nation? I mean, it was untrue when he said things about Chinese people's eyes or Australian Aborigines chucking spears. It would not be tolerated anywhere else, nor from anyone else. When you strip away the facade of familiarity and Prince Philip as one of us, the simple fact is the royal family is not one of us and never can be. It's not just a statement of political fact. This is a legal fact. Acknowledging the unique privileges and prerogatives of royal blood, which includes exceptions from the law itself. Philip's elevation to prince a title which was bestowed upon him by the Queen in 1957, lifted him beyond the range of a subpoena, just as it does Prince Andrew. The royal family is beyond the reach of the law under sovereign immunity, as civil and criminal proceedings cannot be taken against the sovereign. They learnt that lesson with Charles, didn't they? Poor old Charlie who lost his head. No civil and criminal proceedings can be taken against the sovereign. Not anymore. The royal family is exempt from freedom of information laws 
and it exercises an ironclad secrecy over its activities. And it has its own royal archives, which privately house any documents it considers personal, away from public view. And we are only finding out now the actual depths that the Queen went into, and her son Charles, when our own government was dismissed by the monarch of England. Seriously, listener, when are we going to have a republic? When? And while on the subject of the defunct Prince Philip, I'm reminded of a chat I had with Glenn, the 3CR resident historian, just about 12 months ago, where he discusses Prince Philip, or as he calls him, Phil the Greek. Well, good morning, Glenn. Hello, my dear. How are you today? I'm good. And yourself? Oh, well, I tell you what, there's one positive this year. We're sub end of Phil the Greek. No. Oh, you mean him, the old fascist? That's him, Prince Philip. He was the um, he was a, a Nazi sympathiser. He was a racist. He was married to our head of state, Queen Betty Battenberg. Oh yes, he was. He knighted him. He was an Australian knighthood. And God knows, didn't he have a moniker? I mean, he was born to Greece in the Greek and Danish royal families. His dad abandoned him. His mother institutionalised, and he was to the UK to become trained and raised in the UK. But um, his sisters didn't go to the UK. His sisters went across to um, to Nazi Germany. Well, the, at the time, I understand, Glenn, that the powers that be in the UK had to find a husband for Queen Elizabeth. Well, he was groomed for that. And he'd be, he spent a while before he married her, about a few years anyway. But as I said, his sisters didn't go with him to England. They went to Nazi Germany, where they married members of a Nazi party. And there's very sort of links with the royal family and it's many of the offsprings and the Nazis. Uh, they married high-ranking members of the Nazi party, didn't they? They did. And it wasn't just his sister and him. Two great-grandsons of Queen Victoria, Philip and Christopher, became certain officers in the SS, highly-ranked SS officers. So how were they related to Phil the Greek? It's through marriage. Just through marriage. Well, yeah. it's still your family, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, I mean, he was related through marriage to the Queen. Yes. And again, look, he, he spoke, even in his 80s, he spoke about Nazi Germany in, in glowing terms. He said the trains were on time. Buildings were good. There was a sense of hope. The economy was good. We were anti-communists. There were good times under the Nazis. This is only like 15 years ago he's saying this thing. A sense of hope. Well, for him it was, for the wealthy to retain their, their appropriate spot, lording over us. As I said, he had, he had relations through blood and through marriage who were active Nazi sympathisers. We saw King Edward's episodes, you know, with the behaviours there. Phil the Greek wasn't involved in those behaviours. And grandson Harry. Oh, yes, well. Used to love walking around dressed up in Nazi uniform. What's this saying? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, no. And he wasn't just a Nazi. Racism was manifest in his speech. Um, I recall he came to Australia back in the 70s and he spoke about the, the First Nation people here. He, said, um, he spoke about... The First Nation people in Australia. Oh, Do yeah. they still throw spears at each other? When he toured China in 1986, he met British students. He said, 
you stay much longer, you become slightly odd. Oh, 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 oh British humour. Oh, Guffaw, Guffaw. He was a, a very nasty man. Prince yes. Charles, a I, racist, a mm, Nazi. I heard, I have heard more than once that his comments were referred to as um, foot in mouth. They weren't foot in mouth, they were sheer racism. He was speaking the language of his family, of his class. So yeah, 2021 had its moments, but one of the positives was the departure for the Greek. And um, hopefully, hopefully in our lifetime, we see the end of the royal family and they can be put where they should be. In the dustbin of history. Well, the Queen's not going too well, is she, at the moment? No, but there's, there's Charles and there's Randy Andy. <laughs> Randy Andy. Goodness me, where's he going to finish up? Or dare we not ask, you know? And Ed with the cross-dresser. And Harry. And uh, look, they're all a fairly despicable bunch of degenerates. But as I said, 2021, soon to fill the Greek. And um, that's one of the highlights of Menage was here. And, um, it was a highlight of 2021, wasn't it? The end of fill the Greek. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, anyway... You're looking to me. My name's Glenn. I'm here at 3CR on left after breakfast. And before I page back to Susanna, I will say what I say every Friday. The language for the Greek didn't speak, or his family, I will say chocula. Chocula. 3CR. Thank you, Glenn. How fast that year 2021 went and now it's almost the end of 
Love that song. Goodbye to the Crown. By Chumbawamba. Yes, that's their name, Chumbawamba. But I reckon that's a great idea, listener. Goodbye to the Crown. We might have a chance now. Would we have a chance now? The proposal to shift Australia to a republic is an old one, but it hasn't been spoken of much since the failed referendum in 1999. All the states and territories, including Victoria, the most progressive state, but all the states and territories except the ACT returned a no. But I think that many of us weren't happy with the alternative arrangements rather than actively wanting to keep the old Queen. But the point is, January in this year poll showed that a majority of Australians would support the removal of the English monarch as head of state. Could be even higher now. But we have to move forward, we really do. We need to treaty with the First Nations people and we need to become a republic. And here's another music break. This time, something more peaceful than Chumbawamba. It's the gale.
The Gale from The Last of the Moicans by Brej Pan Kelchik. I love that film, Last of the Moicans. I will find you, I will find you. Music was composed by Doogie MacLean for the Pan Celtic Festival, which usually takes place each year in Ireland the week after Easter, and it brings together representatives of all the Celtic nations for competitions and performances of Celtic music, song and dance. The festival was cancelled in 2022 for the third consecutive year due to health measures. But I really like that bit of music, ancient and modern harps, which coexist very happily. And let's hear from the BL from the bush. Yeah, good morning, comrade. Morning, listener. Leo from the bush calling in. Happens they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Yeah, I suppose you listened to or watched the 7.30 report the other night on the carry-ons going on in Medicare, the rorts, which comes at no surprise to some of us. I've said on different occasions on this program over the journey that Medicare was always under threat, one from the Liberal Coalition government and also from the, from the people within the system rorting it. Even though... Uh, at different times, government spokespeople at the time tried to blame blame the people using the system, as in the patients, for the cost blowout. It always always seemed to amuse me that how could the patients be the ones that are rotten the thing when they're the ones going there to try and get help? That's one thing about the system; they're the ones that can't rot it. So uh, it was good that all this come about and finally shining the light on more waste and misuse of taxpayers' money by those people. But society seems to think that they are who are beyond this. Now, I'm not saying for one minute, listener, that, that all the doctors and all the health professionals are rotting it, but there's a few, and a few that are there are doing it very well, to the tune, apparently, or allegedly to the tune of $8 billion, which is, you know, it's not a bad bit of change. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that really struck me about it is was the ease of what these people could, how they could do it. And there was a couple of people on there, professional people that, that had had businesses and whatever, and then stumbled across this misuse of the, of the, of the billing practices and whatever. And then there was one uh, person there, um, Dr Margaret Foe, who did a PhD on it and on how uh, easy it was to rot it and what have you. So, you know, this has been going on for quite some time, listener. The other thing about all this, or you know, the, look, this is bad enough. It, you know, it needs addressing. There's there's a whole a whole host of things that goes on here. Is that Medibank is when I first knew it, when it first came into in, into play back back in the seventies, another legacy of the Whitlam government, is that. The Liberal coalition governments have never liked it. They've always been against it. They've done everything in their power to to make it harder, just so it doesn't work, to give them a chance to, to knock it on the head. 
you know, it's uh, it's lasted this long, listener, and as you and I know, that it is one of the greatest things that this country can offer the people that the least can afford for medical bills and what have you. And this is this is a universal health system that has worked, and it's over the pandemic. But just across the board, the whole thing is that it is a great system. And as I say, this goes back to the Howard days when little Johnny, uh, affectionately known as that desiccated coconut, trying his hardest to try and knock it off, you know, and, and introduce into the country a medical system like they have in a system what they have in America. If you've got money, you can afford it. If you, if you haven't, you'll get crook and die. Simple as that. That's what this mob have been doing for year after year after year. So what it sort of brings me to say to you, uh, listener, is that what annoys me more than anything is that this, is, this has been going on for, well, it's been going on for, for 20 years or more, but more so in the last 10 to 12 years, I suppose. But you look at the comparison of just how this has been left. It, it's just been let to, to, to run riot, you know. Then, then in amongst all this listener, don't forget that they had the Liberal coalition governments uh, put a monitorium on um, on the prices that doctors were getting, the payments doctors were getting too, which you know didn't didn't help the situation. Uh, it's just something else that they were playing around with. But as I say, what really annoys me more than anything, listener, is that how this was just let go, let go for so long. It's not the first time, and this just didn't happen overnight. It's not the first time that, that this has been brought to uh, to the attention of, of so-called bureaucrats and people that should be looking into it, finding out why, you know. Why is this happening? Why is this money being exploited or, or being used for, for whatever reasons? You, you look at that and how it was just left to fester, left to go, and then you look at the cruel and heartless treatment of people that were in, in receipt of social security entitlements. People on the dole, people in the NDIS, people that are struggling for whatever reason were just absolutely hounded, harassed, harangued, victimised and were really put under the spotlight for being on some sort of, as the media love to call them, you know, welfare, on welfare, which really, really, I hate the word. It's not, it's social security entitlements. An option word there, listener, is security, and that's what it's all set up for, is for the security of those that find themselves out of work or in a position where they can't work. Yet that system was just so heavily scrutinised. Look at the amount of money that they that the Liberal coalition government spent on, on trying to make that so hard to access, and did in the end and then to pay people a, a paltry $40, $45 a day. Yet on the other page, here is our great Medicare system getting ripped off for billions and billions of dollars. So it just goes to show you where, where that mob lie, you know, where their attention was. It was on giving it in the neck to the most needy and vulnerable people in this country, and yet on the other side of it, the people that can afford to do stuff and whatever were just ripping the place, ripping the system off. It is well worth keeping an eye on the show, on that 7.30 report, listening just to see what further uh, outcomes come of it. But at least it's out there and I would encourage everyone to start talking and thinking about it because don't worry, listener, this, this Medicare is in trouble. It's in big trouble. I don't want to be alarmist here, but it is in trouble. 
And the, and the one thing that this country can't afford is to lose that or to have it completely stripped back and just get the minimal usage out of it. Uh, just keep an eye on it, Lister. Yeah, stay tuned because I'm sure Susanna and the rest of the crew will have something probably to say about it as well or keep an eye on it. So, yeah. Um, I had a pretty good day last uh, Saturday. We um, went down to the Westgate Bridge Memorial, paid our tribute to the... Uh, to the fallen 35 for the workers that died on the bridge and had a bit of a get-together afterwards and dropped a few uh, stories and listened to some, some of the old, uh, old workers of their, of their trauma and still ongoing trauma of families from that day. Congratulations to all those involved in, uh, in putting on a very good day. The weather was in their favour. So anyway, listener, that'll, uh, that'll do us, do me for today. I'll, uh, I'll go out in the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast, the only show left. Uh, good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. 3CR. You are indeed listening to Left After Breakfast here on Radio 3CR. The only radio left, and I mean that. We're not part of Murdoch or Nine News. We are totally independent, as I mentioned earlier, but I hope you never forget that. Things we bring you here with our 36 different languages and our free and independent radio broadcasts. Now, I'm not going to try and tell you that I'm impartial when I come to news broadcasts, because I'm not. I come straight from a working-class view, from a left-wing point of view. I don't hide it. I don't pretend to be middle of the road, because I'm not. But that's Radio 3CR for you. Where else could I have a voice? Where else could you have a voice, listener? This is your radio station. It's radio by people, for people. And I know you won't forget that. And something else about 3CR also is that we support independent music. And I mean independent. In fact, here's a little bit of independent music. It's called Free Market Blues. Pitching for your vote Elect me, I'll keep the nation afloat Tax cuts for the wealthy Jobs for the poor The gig economy will boom once more It's a free market blue The system we choose Trickle down economy Free market blue Care worker, caring for your folks. 
Fashion shift work get paid less than most No sick leave or holiday pay Credit card is max but the bills won't go away It's the free market blues Not the system I choose Trickle down economy Free market blues Everybody's friend The counselors and planners Love the presents I send But once I get my permit I can do what I please It's just a piece of paper That nobody reads It's the free market blues It's the system we choose Trickle down economy Free market blues Wealthy lawyer, I practice at the bar. Check out my fancy wig, snappy suits, and car. If you're rich enough, I'll arrange bail. Pay me enough money, I'll keep you out of jail. It's the free market news, the system we choose. Trickle down economy. And we will be hearing from the Bagman very shortly. Thanks to the miracles of modern technology. I love it. I love modern technology. And now, so does the Bagman. But first, can I tell you, listener, about a lovely experience I had very recently, just the other day. I don't get many of these lovely experiences anymore. And it would be a pleasure for me to share it with you. There was a little knock on my door and I could see up through the hallway 
through the dark corridor to the light outside and I could see a young man standing there and I thought, oh, what's he going to sell me? Oh, I'll just pretend I can't hear him. But then I realised I could read the writing on his shirt. Something about, I thought, does that say socialist? So I went up and opened the door and, crikey, there was a young fellow. He looked like he was in his teens to me. He actually looked like he should have been at school. But then again, you know, a lot of <laughs> a lot of young people look like they should be at school to me. My father always said, when the police and the priests look like teenagers, you know you're getting old. Okay, Dad, thanks for that. I always remember you saying that because now they do look so young to me. They look like teenagers. But this young chap, lovely young man, was chatting to me and he was from the Victorian Socialist. And I said to him, I'm so really happy to see a young person on this side of politics because to tell you the truth, love, I see plenty of them who aren't. They're on the other side, totally on the other side. But he had some little pamphlets for me and about the Victorian elections which, as you know, are coming up soon. When are they? November 26th, I think. Yes, the 26th of November. And vote for um, Northern Metropolitan Region. And I saw, look at that. Look who's standing. It's Jerem Small. Good on you, Jerem. How nice to see you again, to see your photo on a pamphlet from the Victorian Socialists. So Jerem Small and Ros Ward. Well, I'll tell you what, I know who I'm voting for in the November 26th state election for Northern Metropolitan, and that's Jerem. Well, who wouldn't? He also left me a pamphlet that said, Victorian socialists present a socialist manifesto for real change. It's the launch party of the 2022 state election policy manifesto, and it's tonight. Friday the 21st of October, down at the Seafarers Mission down there at Docklands, Flinders Street, Docklands. It's on the tram nowadays, listen, you just jump on the 75 tram, I found, and I'm right outside the, the Seafarers Mission. It used to be the Siemens Mission. Back in the day, back in the day, it'd be interesting to see the people there. I'd like to get down there tonight, but I can't actually, tram or no tram. Have a listen to Liz Walsh from the Western Metro and Jerem from the Northern Metro. I see that they also have, oh, I'm loving telling you this, that they've got a politics in the pub. Why socialism matters. <laughs> why socialism matters today, for heaven's sake. Why does it matter? Do you have two hours that I can tell you about it? But in any way. Politics in the pub, fight today for a better tomorrow, or for any tomorrow, really. And that's at the Limerick Castle, down there in Errol Street, North Melbourne, on Sunday, the 30th of October, at 4pm. So what a really pleasant and lovely day that was for me to open the door and see a charming young man telling me about socialism. He started to tell me about it, and I said, look, <laughs> I said, it's okay, I'm a socialist, you don't have to tell me the benefits of socialism, but good on him, and good on all the Victorian socialists, and more power to them. Three,
good morning Susan. Welcome to all your listeners. Now I want to go this week for a trip down memory lane or as some people would call it, um, that well-known dusty road. And I want to talk about wage theft. It's a short history but it's not a new phenomenon because George Calambaris recently stole seven point $1 million from his low-paid workers. Heston Blumenthal, celebrity chef, or grafted another $4 million by working his staff for excessive hours without penalty rates. Now, not as well-known, but just as devious was the owner of the Shangri-La Chinese restaurant who was ordered to pay all his 90 workers, $3 million in back pay for not paying penalty rates. Now, I'll get to the reason why I raise this uh, later on. 50 years ago, George Calambaris and the rest of his thieving chef mates couldn't hold a candle to the cooks and the carpetbaggers operating along Ligon Street, Brunswick Street and Smith Street just in the CBD of Melbourne alone. Victoria was awash with fraud and theft, employers paying as little as $2 per hour to young people and also to the industrial unaware. But the liquor trade union was able to put up fierce resistance without assistance from the Industrial Relations Commission or the legal entities every worker should be entitled to. Now, the Liquor Trade Union was in constant battle with employers in many industries, representing brewery workers, malt house workers, Coca-Cola members, and also the distilling industry. But the hotel, restaurant and catering industries were way out in front finding conniving ways to rob workers. Now, obviously nothing's changed. It was, and still is, every worker for themselves. The Howard government introduced work choices, an instrument to bludgeon workers and their unions to reduce the legal rights of unions to offer protection against greed and exploitation. In a time before that, wage theft was able to be controlled to a greater extent by the number of union workers and the power of the unions themselves to take industrial action where breaches of the award were detected. In those days, unions had the legal right to inspect time and wages records for all employees and to seek legal redress through industrial action or at the very least the courts when breaches were detected. Unions and their members also had the protection of the right to strike, a common law right now severely diminished by broken promises of the previous Hawke administration. Now, wage theft has grown more sophisticated 
due to the previous Howard governments introducing new laws to curtail union rights to protect workers in this highly criminally influenced industry. Remember work choices? How could you forget? Where 15-year-old children could take their uncle or even a local priest along with them when negotiating their wages and their conditions with their multinational employer. Well, good luck with that, kids. Now, workers in the service industry are under attack again, not so much from thieving high-profile chefs in danger of disappearing up their own bums, but by ideologues from the previous coalition government. One of those people responsible is a woman called Kate Carnell, a previous Liberal Party apparatchik. Now, she has led the charge to reduce penalty rates of workers in these industries. But what Kate failed to understand was that the majority of workers were not receiving these legal entitlements in the first place, much less proper wages. Now, stories abound about non-payment of award wages, no penalty rates, no super at all, and a threat of instant dismissal if raising these legal matters. Kate Carnell and her coalition colleagues indulged in criminal action, I believe, by failing to investigate the industry fully before making application to Fair Work Australia to reduce the penalty rates for these workers. But you have to ask, where was the union movement fighting for the improved conditions of these lower-paid workers? I go by that well-known saying, if you don't fight, you lose. Kate Carnell must be as popular as a pork chop at the rabbi's picnic, being responsible for lowering even further the wages of these of every low-paid service workers. At the same time, employers in the retail sector were about to have a further $300 million cut from their lower-paid jobs due to the collusion of the shop assistance union and the major retail employees. Now, another well-known saying comes readily to mind, dirty deals done dirt cheap. My advice is, if you want to join a fighting union, don't join them. The retail and fast food workers is the one that fights for you. My only regret after 60 years in the trade union movement, and believe me, I started young, is that the shop assistance union has a seat at the table of the ACTU executive. Now the ACTU stands for Australian Council of Trade Unions. This union, because of their backroom deals with employers, have an almost illegal, no ticket, no start agreement. There can only be one possible reason, or even more why the shop assistant union remains on the ACTU executive. Simply, their finances are based on the number of members 
and the ACTU funds are based on the union's membership. So it can be no other reason except money. There can be no other moral reason. After all, the shop assistants union are extreme Catholics. They're anti-abortion, anti-choice and weighed down with Christian dogma. The hotel, restaurant and catering industry is famous for non-conforming to industrial awards conditions and equally famous for the brutal treatment of workers demanding legal protection against any form of wage theft and the shocking condition imposed without the protection of a genuine fighting union. Now next week we go down that well-known dusty road. I'm going to be talking about my time in the Soviet Union, particularly Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia and Uzbekistan. A number of, I went there a number of times after joining the Food Preservers Union in 1982. Now, the Cold War, the Iron Curtain, was in place. So how were we able to travel there without government approval or knowledge? Well, that's simple. The government still doesn't know, but that will be the next history lesson uh, next week on Susan Duffy's very popular radio program, Left After Breakfast, on Friday morning at 9am on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial.
Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week, same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.